0: I want to be there when the people start to turn it around, when they triumph over poverty.
1: Professor Heidi van Rooyen will do the formal introduction. Uh, I just am um, chairing the session tonight, the first session, which I am very pleased about. For those that don't know me, my name is Yvonne Slick and I am... Um, affiliated to the University of KwaZulu Natal in South Africa in the psychology department. My research area is working with life stories in the educational sector and for the past couple of years uh, on the nexus between peace building and mental health and psychosocial support. I'm really privileged that I've been part of this community for more than 10 years and. I'm going to hand over to Professor Heidi, but I will just want to introduce her first. Um, Professor Heidi van Rooyen is the Group Executive of the Impact Centre at the HSRC, and is currently also the Acting Deputy CEO for Research. Her work has addressed HIV risks and vulnerabilities, as well as the broader inequalities of race and gender that shape that risk. Heidi is a certified life coach who balances the demands of leadership, publishing, and grant writing with a regular contemplative writing practice and poetry. Over to you, Heidi.
2: Uh, Welcome, thank you. Thank you very much, Yvonne, and thank you everyone. So, you know, like I was so ready and then suddenly Ivan was starting to introduce me and I couldn't find my notes. Uh, it's typical how this happens, but just to say um, a very, very warm welcome to all of you from the NFA. I was looking at the chat and we saw the registration list, and I can't even begin to say all the places uh, that you come from, from yeah, in South Africa, from Canada, from the US, in various places in Australia and New Zealand. Just a, a warm, warm welcome to all of you. Um, This story started in October 2019 at the 7th International Symposium on Paetic Inquiry in Nova Scotia and Canada. At that meeting, four of us, who form part of the current steering committee, along with three others, and those four were Yvonne, Dudu, Marie, and myself, um, presented our work on Paetic Inquiry. We also, at that conference, at that symposium, made the case for bringing this symposium to Africa for the first time, since its inception in 2007. So we were super high, super delighted at the end of that had been given this honor to be hosting the 8th International Symposium on poetic Inquiry in Cape Town in May 2021. In fact, it would have been this very week. And then the world turned on the COVID axis. And then the world turned on the COVID axis. And as a result, we had to move the in-person conference to May next year. And in its place, we have these virtual webinars. Now, as I'm sure all of you, all of us around the world have come to grips with COVID and its meanings. We've all, I'm sure, also seen both its hard edges and the loss and the sadness, but also its gifts. And I think tonight, these virtual seminars um, are its gifts to us. Um, We would not have had this opportunity to reach so many of you uh, around the world in the way that we do virtually and so we are thankful for that. We're excited about a couple of things, as I said, excited about bringing Poetic Inquiry to the continent. Now, we're not making any broad claims that we are the first to bring it here, like typical colonizers. We know that Poetic Inquiry, the use of poetry in research, for research, as research, has been happening um, here for some time by many of you who are on this uh, webinar today. But I think it was the opportunity to bring people together from around the world, to bring those of us working on poetic inquiry in South Africa, in Africa, and to bring that together on African soil is what made us feel particularly excited and honored uh, for that privilege, as everyone said. With a sense of perfect timing, not entirely ours, yesterday was Africa Day. Yesterday was Africa Day, an important moment in which an independent Africa called for and started a really hard task to unite and build a peaceful and prosperous continent. Today, or yesterday rather, marked the 58th year since the formation of the body known as the African Union. Africa Day is an important day, maybe not celebrated by everyone, but it's an important day in the sense that it's a day where Africa looks at itself through its own eyes. It's a day where Africa looks at itself through its own eyes, not those of the other. It's a day where it should ask hard questions of where it's been who and what has got in the way, and a day in which it should recommit to what needs to be done. Poetry, its ability to distill, inspire, to move, to touch hearts, to shift thinking, to create a moment. Poetry practiced throughout history in every culture and on every continent, and this continent too, provides wonderful tools for this kind of reflection. It allows us to arrange black text and white space in the page of this land and its people, To talk about common humanity, our shared values in the midst of the inequalities, gender, sexuality, age, race, class, disability, and many others. These inequalities that keep us separate, distant, and disinterested, that see some almost drowning in privilege while others remain trapped in layers of need, that see some almost drowning in privilege while others remain trapped in layers of need. The COVID-19 pandemic has laid bare these inequalities even further. How fitting then that these webinars fall in the shadow of Africa day, and that we have an opportunity to reflect on this theme, intersections of silence and invisibility, and what it means for us in this part of the world, and what it means for you too, wherever you may be and wherever you may live. These three webinars allow us to consider the role of poetry as a research method, and how it provides a vehicle for expressing and seeing our unfair exclusion and unearned inclusion are embodied, expressed in the silences we inhabit, in the ways we are invisible to self, to others, community and our environment. So our objectives really for these uh, webinars were simple, threefold. The first was to gather as a community of poets, research poets, poets who do research, researchers who do poetry, poets, creative inquirers to gather in the middle of this pandemic to find a way to be with each other and our words and our voices and our song together and to, to, together with each other and our words, our voices and our song. To learn and engage from those doing this for a long time, for those who are new, for those who are eager to learn and learn again. And thirdly, to introduce you to South Africa through its poets, its poetry, its poet researchers, uh, with the hope of whetting your appetite um, and COVID-willing for you to join us in person next year in South Africa for the full symposium. So we've designed a three-part webinar, a series part one today attempts to kind of foreground the head, the thinking, the talking. Uh, We'll speak about poetic inquiry as method, crafting in crafting poetry as research, a panel of poets will engage in the theme and the topic and share their work in relation to the theme. So we foreground the head today, but of course we know that words have a way of finding uh, their way to our hearts, to our feet. And so as you listen, and as you hear, and as you take it in, we hope that your hearts and your feet will also be engaged and that your curiosity ideas are sparked. So welcome, welcome, welcome. We cannot tell you how delighted we are, and relieved actually, to be at this moment where we are launching uh, this first of the three webinars. And so thank you, Yvonne, and welcome to all of you have a
1: wonderful night. Thank you very much, um, Heidi. I was really transported into the depth of all of this as you were talking to us. We're sitting in a reality in South Africa that um, as we are speaking, we are sharing electricity and some of us don't have it right now. And we have to plan it into our whole conference. We, yeah, serious context challenges that, that we are in, but also very exciting ones and really hoping to contribute. Um, we were so lucky and privileged that um, Professor Monica Prendergast from Canada, who all of you probably know and will know if you do, uh, if you have not met her yet by the end of this uh, conversation. Um, Monica is Professor of Drama and Theatre Education at the University of Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. She has co-edited two anthologies and two special issues on Poetic Inquiry and her Poetic Inquiry work has appeared in journals such as Qualitative Inquiry, Research in Drama Education, Cultural Studies, Critical Methodologies, Art Research International and International Journal of Education and the Arts. Monica co-founded with Carl Lego the Biennial International Symposium on Poetic Inquiry in 2007. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this keynote address for us and over to you, Monica. You unmute, Monica. Uh, While Monica is unmuting herself, I just wanted to ask the The participants to please as you're listening to the presentation and the panel discussion to put your questions and comments in the chat where it will be collated and we'll try and address some of this at the end of the session and otherwise um, at any of the other sessions. Thanks Monica.
3: Okay, Uh, you can hear me now?
1: Yes. We can hear you clearly. Okay. Thank you.
3: All right. Um, Thank you so much for that lovely, uh, those opening words and um, introduction. So I'm here today to share with you some of the research I've been undertaking for many years now, uh, since I did my postdoctoral research with Carl Lego as my mentor supervisor from 2006 to 2008. Today, I'm going to focus on 10 distinct voices that I have discovered in the literature on poetic inquiry after gathering first um, an over 1000 page bibliography in my postdoc and subsequently um, updates to that bibliography that have gone from 2007 to 2012, and then from 2012 to 2015. I do need to update, um, uh, get a graduate student to update the bibliography again, and I hope that will happen soon. So, we'll walk you through these 10 voices that I've identified. I use Latin um, as a uh, for its poetic quality, I suppose, but I've also translated each of the names of the terms. And to give you a quick illustration of each of these voices, I've uh, included short excerpts from my own poetic inquiry work, um, and also um, uh, in in some cases, uh, excerpts from other people, other poetic inquirers. So let's begin. The most dominant voice in Poetic Inquiry is the autobiographical or autoethnographical voice. In my first bibliography, uh, almost 50% of the entries I was able to code or or consider as uh, autobiographical or autoethnographical voice. And so here is um, a snippet. And I think that that fact remains the case as time moves on. There are still uh, plenty of of examples in the literature of uh, autobiographical or autoethnographical poetry. So here's a a snippet from a publication from 2015 when I had performed um, a play about the, a solo play about the American peace activist Cindy Sheehan, and I performed it in high schools. So it was a a peace education project. So this is um, the end of one of the poems. I sit in the camping chair under the Texas sun in a high school auditorium, desiring an end to war and the empty deaths of thousands upon thousands under the desert sun, thousands of miles away. I may, may I sit here forever talking with these students, dreaming together of peace. The next voice that is very dominant in the discourse is the participant voice. And in this case, researchers are using data of some kind, mostly interview data, and then creating found poems from that data. In my own case, I was invited by the artography group at UBC when I was there as a postdoctoral researcher to um, first author uh, an article based on some research that Peter Gazuasis, who was a music educator, had carried out with high school students. Um, and so here are some haiku that were generated from that research. What does music mean to you? Everything. It makes me happy. Pretty much depend on it. Reason why I live. Push. When making music, I become original. Individual. Blank. I just concentrate. Everything goes away. All my worries. Yeah. Helps. Every aspect pumps you up or consoles you like singing with friends. Philosophy. It kind of makes up who you are at the same time describes the person. The next voice in the literature is Vox Theoria or the theoretical voice. And in this, um, there are substantial examples actually in my own dissertation, where I chose to present my literature review as a sequence of found poems. Now, this example is from a more recent publication um, and this is in a lovely collection I highly recommend called Poetry, Method and Education Research. This this, uh, set of poems came from my frustration that education was always being framed as a social science, whereas my experience of education has always been a very artful one as an arts educator. And so here's one short example from this set of poems. Likelihood. There is no more likelihood, no more a likelihood of finding a recipe for education than finding an infallible method for making painters or poets. Now this one's kind of fun. I was struggling with formatting (laughs) and at one point the title slide flipped upside down. And I kind of liked it, so I kept it. So the next voice in the literature is Vox Poetica. And these are poems about self or writing or poetry as method. So uh, in terms of self, it might be poems that are aware of um, the fact that one is writing poetry. So this is a snippet, um, a selection of pieces from a long found poem that I published in qualitative inquiry in 2015 based on one of the updates to my bibliography. I wonder whether the poets laugh at our hesitant apologetic understanding of poetry as research when they have always known it as the only kind of truth that matters that we can ever hope to know. I want to be on the stage and I want to be hidden under the chair at the same time. Poetry is when I lift my brown hemp skirt in the packed metro car, show some striped tights in orange, rusty red and plum purple. But my fun flushed face and toes are only a dream of a dream I told you about just now like writing some poem. Writing like it matters means we sure as hell better live within the words and breathe within the spaces. The next voice I identified in the literature I call Vox Justitia. And these are poems that deal with topics of equity, equality, social justice, class, or freedom. So here are um, some haiku from an article I wrote based on my first experience performing in a prison theater production. We have a federal prison just outside of Victoria and I've been lucky enough to have done two productions out there with uh, the inmates. And they were incredible um, experiences. Greetings, a haiku suite. I shout out hello to each and every one by name. They are seen. I see them as men who have come to this place and dream another one. They have given much grief to others, victims, yes. Still, I grieve for them. What more can I do? I cannot fix them and yet wish them fixed and free. My hope here is that the memory of this play will stay, sustain them, to show the magic in imagination to take them beyond now. The gift of theater, to transport these men elsewhere, anywhere but here. The next voice I call vox Identitatis. These are poems that explore either the poets or participants, gender, race, sexuality, and the intersections of those. So here's an autobiographical, autoethnographical poem I um, wrote a number of years ago that was published in a book called How How Higher Education Feels. Something broken, broken, a pantoum. There is something broken in me I never go down to the sea to the rocks and the driftwood a scatter against the curve of a mountain-backed bay I never go down to the sea too busy too busy too busy you see the curve of a mountain-backed bay lost to the humdrum thrum of humanity too busy too busy too busy to be with the silence the seagulls the sky far from the humdrum thrum of humanity There is something broken in me. The silence, the seagulls, the sky, I never go down to see. There is something broken in me. This lunacy, work making free. Vox custodia are poems of caring, nursing, caregivers or patients' experience. And this is where health research has made significant contributions to the field of poetic inquiry. So this poem is from the foreword, I was invited to write a foreword for uh, the 2017 publication that came out of the 2015 poetic inquiry uh, gathering at uh, the University of British Columbia. Um, this is not so overtly about custod- uh, health research, but it is, um, What I loved about that collection is the strong uh, ecological voice. And of course, environmentalism and and a sense of ecology um, is a form of caring for the earth and for this wonderful planet that we live on. These chapters unfold in witness and wisdom. Familiar voices sing in harmony with those that are new. I am so heartened here, so many poems, how far we have come to arrive here in this place. The webbing of leaves, the ebbing of lives, the leaving of gifts, the testimony of trees. Ecofractal prisms shed perception as scattered handful glass marbles across the sunlit grass. The next voice is uh, vox Procreti- the These are poems that deal with parenting, family, uh, or religion, or spirituality. So, in two thousand and seven, Carl, um, who we love and miss so much, um, since his passing early too soon in twenty nineteen, uh, Carl and I published. Um, a chapter in uh, the International Handbook of Research in Arts Education. So just a snippet. Question, how is poetry in research akin to spiritual practice? Answer, spirituality means making sense, deriving purpose, cherishing beliefs, transcendence beyond self connecting and becoming, unfolding life, reflection, and experience. And that was a found poem I created just from looking at the definition of spirituality. The last two voices are the most recent ones that I have added to the voice forms in Poetic Inquiry. And it's wonderful for me that both of these voices emerge from my analysis of Kara Leggo's work. And this is from my um, uh, keynote talk the first um, inaugural Carl Lego Memorial Lecture that was given at the 2019 symposium and was published uh, in 2020. So Vox Veritas is the truth-telling voice. Be careful, don't perceive the world as fearful only. Embrace fear, lean into it, live with it as everydayness, cycling sometimes with and sometimes against the wind. The wind, not to be feared or despised, an ecological understanding, everything and everyone is connected. Uh, The found poems in this article are drawn from, not from Carl's poetry, but from his prose. And this last voice also that made itself very present as I worked with Carl's writing is vox cupio or the the wishing voice, the voice of wishing. And this is the voice that is hopeful about the future. What are the ducks laughing about? What would a curriculum of enchantments look like? What if we devoted our teaching and learning our living curriculum to exploring how many kinds of enchantments there are in this world. What would research be like if we acknowledge the miraculous experience of the earth, the experience of miracles, of seasons, day and night, of creatures and stars and snowflakes beyond counting and naming. What would research be like if we devoted our energies to exploring possibilities where people could stand in the spaces between commonplace and miracle and know in each moment, the momentousness of unfathomable life. So that brings to a close my presentation today and I look forward to our conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Monica. This was spot on in terms of everything we'd hoped to cover. It uh, totally addressed the, the topic, the, um, the whole theme of our, our webinar series, but with such vivid, um, yeah, you gave all the answers through poetry and um, that was just a lovely example of it. I'm sure that you will get some questions from the audience as well and you'll be able to join us is that one of the questions that, uh, that came up was uh, what is found poetry but tomorrow there's a whole workshop on found poetry so they, each one of those and each one of those voices showing a different way of working with the data mm-hmm. uh, was really inspirational. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So, um, we're going to have on our panel, um, Heidi, who you've already met and Monica, and then Dudu, uh, Dr. Dudu Zile Glovu is a postdoctoral fellow at the African Center for Migration and Society, the University of uh, Witwatersrand. She translated her PhD on Zimbabwean migrants, memorials of Gukurawundi violence in Johannesburg into poetry to access a wider and non-academic audience. She held the Newton Advanced Fellowship 2018 until 2020 at the Center of African Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to our panel, Dudu, as well. Um, Yes, I am actually going to ask uh, Dudu uh, as an opportunity to give a response to what struck you about Monica's presentation, just to start the conversation.
4: Thank you, thank you Yvonne, and um, good evening to everyone joining us. Thank you so much, Monica, for, for that presentation. Um, first off, I, I love lists and order. And, and so when you when you introduced your talk with 10, 10 voices, I was really excited to follow through those 10 voices. Um, and I was also struck by the way in which you used Latin um, in terms of structuring and that uh, for me really um made me think about language and the way in which um, so when we're thinking about language there is academic there's English but also there is the genre in which we, we write um, academic English and and poetry all like really breaks almost all the rules when we think about subjectivity when we think about the the way in which, Um, academic texts are supposed to be this unquestionable, this is what it is, there's there's no questioning. And I I really enjoyed the way in which um, your your presentation centered the voice um, and the way in which poetry allows for different kinds of, for you to to write in different kinds of voices. And also as I was listening, I was thinking in my work, um, as Yvonne spoke about that, I translated my thesis into poetry. Part of me translating into poetry was for me to find that voice that was more authentic. So part of the background to my thesis is that I was an insider, outsider researcher. And so I had this pressure of the academic world and the kind of thesis I'm expected to write. But also as an insider, outsider, I was aware of what um, the the Zimbabwean migrants that I was was researching, the kind of texts that they wanted produced. And so poetry for me allowed that in between voice. um, The autobiographical ethnographic in which I could put myself alongside the participants, but as well as centering the participants' voices in different ways, like speaking about found poetry, um, analyzing interviews in a way that, uh, analyzing an interview into a poem in a way that really centered participants' voices, um, and also showed The work that I was doing as as a researcher analyzing what people had said. So I thank you so much. I'm still going to go back to the different voices. I was actually thinking it will be interesting to go back and look at the different poems that I have written and how what are the different voices that are coming
1: out in those spaces. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Dudu. And before you respond, Monica, I was just um, wanting to ask Heidi um, if she wanted to add to the conversation there.
2: Yeah, no, just very briefly. Thank you too, Monica. I think just uh, uh, struck by poetry and its form and its ability to in such fewer words convey so much. Um, So that really struck me as you went through uh, all your different voices and those poems, how they captured that so perfectly. I suppose I had a bit of a question for you, but maybe it's, that's that's not what I'm supposed to do, Yvonne, but the question partly was in listing these, in finding or discovering these 10 different voices, I wondered how they sat in your body. Did you experience them in different ways? So it, it felt like a, quite a theoretical exercise, go trawling through the literature, figuring out these different voices, and I wondered... Were there some felt senses of autobiographical or um, uh, custodia? Did, did it feel different for you the different voices, apart from you know obvious uh, uh, ways in which you demonstrate uh, through the poems and in the text? Hmm.
3: Um, sh- should I answer that now, or should yes, we hold, hold uh, Yes, please, uh, Monica.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah, thank you for that that question, Heidi. It's a, it's a really um, it's a really great one and thank you also Dudu, for your your lovely um, words there that's I experienced that as a gift um, I suppose I come to that sense of voice uh, because my my field is drama and theater and mm-hmm. so of course voice is absolutely at the heart of drama and theater you know we call a, a, we use the word audience and and that, relates to the ear. So although theater is, of course, very visual, we do take it in, into um, through the ear as well. But of course, drama and theater are also highly embodied practices, deeply embodied. And so when you ask about how I experience voice in a more embodied way, um, yes, of course. I mean, I you're, you're making me think back to my, my, my first gathering of that first, um, uh, you know, bibliography, which, was, which staggered me because I found so much more than I expected. Hundreds of, of examples, many, many more than I ever dreamed were actually out there, all published in social science research journals, not arts journals, not humanities journals, social science research journals, and I did discover that this work really uh, was started by anthropologists, in many cases, white anthropologists in, in non-white settings uh, in Africa, in other parts of the world. And that sense of strangeness and otherness that those anthropologists uh, experienced, pushed them to poetry. And so, yes, I think there is a push. And I think we experience that push in a physical way And certainly in my own experience as a poetic inquirer, inquirer, that is often a moment that I feel in my body when I know that that I need to shift from writing academic prose to writing a poem because I'm trying to, to talk about something that feels authentic to me as Dudu was saying, but it needs to be articulated In a way that that pushes me out of you know academic prose and into poetry you know Lawrence Ferlinghetti the wonderful wonderful American poet um, wrote and I I often use this quote when working with students that a poem is the shortest distance between two people and and I love that and I think that also has some embodiment in it Heidi in that it it pulls people together it crystallizes a a thought or or a a, you know a feeling and so yes i mean the great poets the poets i absolutely love are poets who who evoke a bodily um presence in their work that it is not just kind of philosophical or floating up in the ether but grounded in lived experience so I'm thinking of the wonderful American poet Mary Oliver as someone who comes to mind immediately, who was an, so capacious in her ability to pull us into the world and to notice um, nature and 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 what was going on. Uh, and so, yes, I think that not enough has been written about that that what you're saying, Heidi, about. Imp- embodiment in poetic mm. inquiry and I think it's a really important topic and I love that you asked me that question. Thank you.
1: Mm. Thank you Monica. Um, while you were talking I was also thinking again of, of um, decolonizing voice um, as mm. you were in the examples you were using and I wondered what um, Hardy and Dudu um, Thought Africa or African researchers could add to the field of poetic inquiry. Either of you. I'm happy to go, Dudu. Uh,
2: yeah, and so I think I was also struck by that as Monica was talking there about um, anthropologists uh, being pushed to poetry uh, uh, many years ago. And uh, one of the things that is, has, has, has kind of really stayed with me as I have embarked in the space of working with poetry and doing poetic inquiry. Um, I think if you look at the, the, the song that we play kind of gave you a sense of the kind of circumstances and conditions by under which we live, the, the extent of the marginal, marginalization, discrimination, the sense of otherness of sometimes uh, not enough voice in the right places. I think poetry and poetic inquiry has a really powerful uh, uh, place in being able to make those stories visible, in being able to tell those stories, in being able to, I think, sometimes throw a new light on these stories of exclusion, of marginalization, of discrimination, and to do so from the perspective, I think, of those lived realities. I think, particularly, the opportunity in these much more collaborative ways to co create poems with participants as I've done, for example, with gender and sexual minority groups, is really powerful because what it does is that very thing that Monica was talking about, it kind of equalizes this power game that we as academics have for so many years uh, held and owned in terms of the ways in which we produce the data or show the data or give the data or organize the data. Uh, Co-creating those poems, sharing poems with participants, getting them to either write them themselves or then really equalizes that. And for me, the big shift was that feeling inside of me of I wasn't in control anymore so much. And that not feeling of not being in control of data of a process is a wonderful thing because I think when we do that, we open ourselves up to really hearing, seeing, and experiencing the other. Somehow, our qualitative research, the ways in which we have done it, the neat little summaries of text that describes a person's situation and story, keeps us safe also. It keeps us behind the words, behind the blocks of text, never ever moved, engaged, shifted or moved by these circumstances in which we live and work. And poetry uh, forces us to come outside from behind the blocks of text and begin to see in these much more distilled ways these real lives uh, that are all around us and I think becomes a really powerful tool for action. So I'm really excited by being able to use it in those ways here and to bring more of that into
1: into the space. Mm. Thank you, Heidi. Um, did it? Um, absolutely.
4: I think um, when we are uh, thinking about decolonizing research. And when we take a step back and think about um, how, how, so for example, Ndlovu Gajeni has written a paper about um, the dirty history that um, research has in in Africa. And and part of it is the way in which um, research on the continent was really about making Africans legible for the other right. Um, and, but it continues right now in different ways, the genre that we write in, in the language that we use. And so poetry really, um, in addition to, to what Heidi has just highlighted, like the, the destabilizing of the power dynamics of the research and participant power dynamic, poetry does that, but also it allows for a widening of the audience for whom that we are writing our research, because if we are going to speak to people um harvest um stories about their lives and then we are putting this together for a journal this is going to be one um, in a language that this person cannot meaningfully engage with, this person cannot actually challenge. Um, but secondly, it's going to be behind a paywall. Um, and we also like go back to issues around the, the ref work. What is it that the university is going to value in terms of my output? It's a journal article that's in a space that nobody else can engage with. And so actually the researcher remains quite central to the process in terms of the benefit, but also in terms of pow- the power of um, directing the narrative. Um, and so poetry, because it it allows us to write in a way that actually participants can engage with. Um, in my work, actually, when I finished my thesis, I, I then ran workshops with participants and presented the poems to them. In the first workshop, I was like, goodness what were you thinking because i i really experienced ev- something that i believe every researcher should actually be putting themselves in that space of coming back and saying actually i interviewed you and this is what i wrote about you and for that person to engage meaningfully and challenge what i have said if they are challenging or say well you you got it but there was a little bit that you missed so and and i think that's one of the I mean, it's one of the pieces to decolonizing research, right? I mean, decolonizing is a whole big um, thing that we all have to engage in the way that is possible in the different spaces that we are in. So I think for me, in terms of shifting who gets to be the audience and who gets to critique me as a researcher and what I have written is a powerful way in which poetry can contribute to
1: um, decolonization. Mm. Thank you, Dudu. All three of you have spoken so powerfully about voice inclusion, but also transcending and a real connectedness and that the poetry does that in a way that presenting research data in other ways does not do. But one of the questions that came up in the chat as well is, so if we are in education settings in academic institutions, um I know that's difficult in in Africa but maybe the two of you can speak about that from South Africa and you can also Monica whether the places in which your poetic research is published whether that's actually acknowledged by the institution as a scientific piece and that you're sitting on that that edge um all the time like contemplating this is so important this is this really is the data speaking to me. I want to bring that out because, as Monica said, it's the shortest distance between the researcher and uh, the participant and audience voice. But what if it doesn't give you your credit outputs that you're supposed to produce as an academic? Any one of you to answer? Um, I can go ahead, Dudu.
4: So I have, I have actually, perhaps it's been, it's been the, the gift of, of being naive. I have, I actually have um, an article in uh, African studies review, which is um, a a social science um, journal that actually has a found poem in it. Um, And so for me, I, because of, for me, ethically, I feel that I need to be pushing the envelope of what is acceptable. If, if I'll, I'll submit an, a journal article to a journal that does not necessarily publish poetic inquiry with poetry within it. And if it gets rejected, it gets rejected. But I think um, it's for me, it's an important ethical shift in the way in which we write up research and in, in the way in which we publish. And so I will be, this, those are the small kind of uh, pushing the that I, I do. But I think that there are journals that are open to um, publishing poetic inquiry.
1: Thank you. So you're basically saying you're looking at the accredited journals, you present your work, and that will be one way in which both can happen. Monica, you wanted to say something about it? Uh, yes, I mean, part of, I think
3: part of the mission of arts-based researchers in general, because of course, poetic inquiry is a form of arts-based research, <clears throat> you know, has been to try to get the work into journals that have not welcomed the arts before. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, one of those pieces, the haiku suite from from music students that I uh, wrote with with Peter Gazuis at UBC, um, he was so, so thrilled to get that work into a music education journal because music education is apparently a very quantitative field. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, th- this is part of the work. It is. It is. A, a, it has to be a kind of political intervention into standardized research practice, whether it's qualitative or quantitative. Yes, there are, and this is a, a wonderful thing that there are now a number of journals that welcome um, poetry, a qualitative inquiry being one of them, Um, And this is really because Norman Denzen, the the editor, has always been very open to to arts-based research. He's been really a champion for arts-based research. Um, But there are other journals. So when I first published poems in Research and Drama Education, which is the number one ranked journal in my field, that was a, a huge victory for me because there had never been a poem published in that journal, ever before and now I've gone I think I've published poems three or four times in that journal and so this is part of the work that we are you know we need to advocate and we need to fight for space in in these uh, academic journals and we need to show these peer reviewers that this work does as much if not more than a more standard academic article and that goes back to the, you know, the 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 power of poetry to, to, you know, to do more and to say more. It's the capaciousness, the the generosity that 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 poetry can do, and also the way that it can crystallize understanding. So um, these are these are battles worth fighting, um, and. Um, but certainly you know qualitative inquiry is a very highly ranked journal and so you know it's a wonderful um space to for people to publish their work
1: Mm. thank you um, monica it's really nice to hear um the process the journey that has gone into this and yes the victories have to be celebrated and the advocacy role um, and pushing the envelope as dudu says is really important I wondered, Heidi, from a research institution, um, you have really taken this methodology to heart. How is it viewed? And um, yeah, what impact is it, is it having on the research institution and vice versa? You're muted. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, So I think it's been really interesting. We've done a couple of things uh, around this, so moved around the country and trained um, a lot of my colleagues in um, poetic inquiry, and particularly how to work with data, whether that's transcript data, whether that's literature, and, and to generate uh, and, to, and to develop uh, found poems, just partly what we'll do tomorrow in one of the workshops. Uh, And so it's been really interesting. I think for me, it's interesting on two levels. The one is this advocacy point that both Monica, both Monica and Dudu are making, Uh, but I think linked to that for me is, I believe, um, a greater challenge to us as, as academics and researchers and a kind of a recognition that that role is shifting that we cannot no longer be satisfied with just putting something in a good journal. I think there's a challenge for us to be saying, we need to do more with our work. We have a greater responsibility to make that work accessible, to give that work back to participants, to make it more visible in spaces outside of the small spaces of academia that where we get our credit and where we show our work. And so for me, that's a really important piece alongside. And I'm not saying I'm not being strategic. We all want to get ahead in the ways that we need to get ahead in our respective organizations. And we have to push that and continue to do that but I think we have a bigger responsibility to also much more widely disseminate our work and speak to others. And poetry allows us to do that in really, really powerful ways. And then just lastly, when we, when we did this exercise around the four uh, 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 sites uh, that the organization uh, works from, it was really interesting to a person what happened in that process. A, people thought, I can't write poems. I'm not a poet. I can't do that. So that's how they came into the workshop. And then to kind of watch this process as people start to take dead interview data or transcripts or a reading or text, a, a bit of text from a novel, anything, any text. And that process, of being able to kind of take that and to create something from that and to see what happens. And for a lot of those who came with research data, there was that feeling that I talked about in the beginning, that sense of, I'd become a bit immune to this very, group that I've been working with, gender and sexual minorities, issues around race, around violence, I've become immune, even though I've been doing this work for so long, perhaps because I have been doing it for so long. And the poetry and the creating of the poems from the data did something for us too. It kind of reinvigorated, it re-energized, it recommitted us to the importance of this research, to the importance of telling these stories of getting them out as a mechanism, as a means for change and, and for transformation. So it shifted us. I felt like I, in the last three years have been much more energized and have my colleagues too in just being able to see this data with fresh eyes, with poetic eyes, I think, um, and, and the real power and value that comes from that.
1: Thank you, Heidi. Um, all <laughs> of you have spoken about how how simplifying the data makes it more accessible, deepens understanding and can even lead to transformation. Unfortunately, we have to leave it at this. We have to end this session so we can have a five minute break before the next session starts. But this has been so inspiring and um, in many ways, in the doing, in the advocacy, in the why, in the how, just thank you very much, everybody, for your contributions.
5: Thank you, Heidi, Yvonne, Dudu, and Dr. Prendergast for this um, inspiring opening act. Uh, what a way to start this webinar. I took a lot of notes, and I will carry def- uh, some of the ideas that you uh, shared with us today in our workshops tomorrow. And I'm sure a lot of us will continue these conversations in the next two days. So. Uh, Many thanks for for such an inspiring uh, opening act. I am Dr. Rafael Dabdon. I'm a poet, editor, translator, teacher, and an honorary research fellow at the HSRC. Uh, My area of interest being spoken word poetry, poetry therapy, and of course, poetic inquiry. And uh, tonight I have the honor and the privilege to chair a panel which features for exciting South African poets, for writers, performers, researchers, cultural activists, for groundbreaking artists. And uh, the session will will run as follows. I will first briefly uh, give you some biographical background of the poet. uh, And then they will also uh, take a minute or two to um, discuss their engagement with the webinar with a webinar topic. And then they will read their poetry. And at the end of their slot, uh, I will read the poems that you uh, will have typed in the chat. So I'm encouraging you from now to um, send questions to the poets. Okay, but uh, without uh, further ado, I want to introduce our first guest poet, Jelem C. Jelem Jellem is a writer educator and photographer living in Suane, South Africa. Their poetry work has been long listed in the Sore Plucky Poetry Anthology 2018, and their poem, Born to the Grave, appears in the recently published, Years of Fire and Ash, South African Poems of Decolonization. Jele is a strong believer in the spoken word space as a way to further the oral tradition to push against the confines of silence and elaborate the unsaid through physicality. As such, they took part in the prestigious Word and Sound Slam in 2018, and the Tswane Speak Out Loud competition in 2019, positioning as a finalist in both competitions. In 2020, their goal of winning a slam finally came to fruition when they won the Poetry Africa Slam Jam, the first Poetry Africa Slam Jam. They recently performed at Constitutional Hill at the Basha Huru Festival and made appearance, appearances here and there in the South African open mic space. They were a guest on the late Maisha Jenkins' show Living with Jazz and Poetry. They appeared on the show again shortly after her passing to speak to the new host, Kwaz Root. Jele is also a professional editor and proofreader. Who works closely with the established in Paper Press publishing house? Jena's works explore gender, sexuality, abolition, and freedom. Welcome to our Poetic Inquiry webinar, Jelly.
0: Ciao, Fratella. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you all for coming out tonight. I would like to also thank the Human Sciences Research Council for hosting the 8th International Symposium of Poetic Inquiry, presenting us with the opportunity to share our work, to investigate and explore what it means to be alive. I start in thinking about today's theme on silence and invisibility and my work by reading an extract by Adrian Rich's poem, Cartographies of Silence. A conversation begins with a lie and each speaker of the so-called common language feels the ice flow split drift apart as if powerless, as if up against a force of nature. A poem can begin with a lie and be torn up. A conversation has other laws, recharges itself with its own false energy, cannot be torn up, infiltrates our blood, repeats itself, inscribes with its unreturning stylus, the isolation it denies. I'm thinking how my work in general attempts, as Joanne Dale puts it in reference to Rich's work, free itself from its own history. But in my case, it is not only to break the chains of patriarchal violence so enmeshed in this language, but to take it further in ways that free us from the bonds of colonialism and neocolonialism and their myriad elaborations of anti-Blackness. I'm thinking of how we can loop to this language to redistribute its syllables in the service of the alternative. So my work observes in some ways, the technologies of silence, how the clever mechanizations of coercion produce and reproduce quiet violences that turn us and force us away from ourselves. I am interested then in careful omissions. My work attempts to speak to those missing pieces, to the missing bodies and minds that scatter the landscape, that make up the landscape. And I think that this is in part, the redistribution of language and the undoing of silence. My poem that I'll be reading today is called Anakiram. The days rot, the bleeding sun fills the sky with a stench that grips the brains of those living near Dongas. Small houses built on dust promises, blown in faces, catching on lashes from smiling men in nice clothes on cardboards. The cardboards are fixed, one on top of the other to the only working street lamp in the area. The trees croak, the frogs sway. Under the foul sky father is a ghost. Once a year, when he was home, before he was a scattered man stitching his wounds together with beer and moans, before he forgot where home was, he'd whisper in his boy's ear, voice scraping the earth's bowels, Umfana Wa: you are made of all the precious things that can't be dug from the dirt. They would open a knick-knack packet and boy would fall asleep in the corner, his parents' bodies silently greeting as though meeting for the first time. The following week, father is on a bus, back to making cuts in the ground as the ground carves holes in him. His words are crammed into a sandwich by mother, whose hands raise other children in faraway places with nice gardens. Boy walks to school in the heat. In the distance between home and class, he learns how to divide learns he can't eat his bread whole, learns how to ration his father's voice to stave off the hunger of longing, learns how to break into fractions, how to scatter. Boy leaves himself in places. He forgets his left leg under a desk at school, his arm under the croaking tree, his stomach at the foot of the street lamp. On the weekends when mother could come home, she finds him as a head. A day comes when the other boy with a gap-toothed smile finds the leg he forgot at school. Other boy says he noticed boy crawling, hands him his leg with a giggle, bird laughter gliding between his gap. It is the first time boy hears music. He dances home on two feet. There are nights when a dog with a man's body stops by the house when mother is not home. Dog pokes its sharp snout round the house, smell of brandy and tick, mixing with its coat. Dog says it's looking for food. Dog asks when mother will return. Dog's eyes are feverish, feral, flaming, mad. Boy gives the same reply, angazi. Dog slips out into the night. Boy pulls out a tin tub, pour cold water in, climbs in. Blood unfurls in the water from between his legs. Boy is grown, and mother is ill. She stutters the name of the husband who forgot where home is till it froths down her cheeks into her graying hair. The doctors say she's bewitched and give grown boy and purple to burn. Through the smoke, grown boy sees father's shadow on the wall. He knows where he'll find work to support his mother. Grown boy takes taxis to a distant place called Anakiram. For months, he and other grown boys are lowered down the earth's ribs. Grown boy splits the ground looking for father. Every snap of a silver bone is the forging of an answer. There comes a day when father's scream is heaved out of grown boy's chest in red. In the dimming light, grown boy looks like a ghost. He sleeps for years in that shivering night. There is a rumbling and the boots and soles of the other grown boys. They are tired of how the sky weighs heavy on their bones, tired that the only thing left breathing is their misery. So they march, lightning in arms, hurricane in legs, anger in hearts, hearts broken up by the stutter of other grown boys, gripping police rifles. An unseen old man kneels, weeping. His one gnarled hand grips his stomach, pushing back his guts, while his other holds the shattered skull of a boy, a knickknack packet crushed in his hand. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much Njele. Um, as usual, is a, a, a pleasure to see as you are, how you're growing as a, as a poet, as an individual, and how your voice has become so relevant in our space. I'm just reading uh, the, all the enthusiastic po- uh, comments. To your, to your performance. You have impressed our audience. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. it was, this is no surprise to me. Um, so uh, I see that there are no direct questions to the poet. So um, we agreed with the poet that if there were no questions, I would request them to read another poem for us. So if you, um, if you'd like to share another poem with us, please Njele.
0: All right, cool. Oh and just to, I see a question up here someone's asking for the name of the poem Cartographies of Silence that's, uh, that's the one by Adrian uh, Rich um, for that question there so my next poem it's called The Silver Beginning mm-hmm. Who were we before they came? The story goes after they were so full of fear and yearning. All that was left of us was more casing than flesh. We dragged ourselves out the darkening corpse, out of the only reason, into the burning white morning. You found us shuddering as we ripped in and out of fiction, the myth congealing in our veins. The petals of cistrine plucked from the sky mixed with the sliced river. Your blood, your spit, halted our flickering but could not undo all that had been done. And we forget. No, we choose to open ourselves narrow enough not to see that you too are made of the same lightning that made us, that the hands that covered ours while we became ghosts were made of mist." Thank you.
5: Thank you so much, fratello. As I said, the comments speak uh, by themselves. so powerful, I haven't cried in a webinar in a long time, riveting, and they go on and on and on. So thank you very, very, very much Njele, for this amazing opening um, reading for us. Thank you. Thank you, Ngele. Our second poet is Maneo Refilo emojale a South African editor, feminist writer and poet. Their work has appeared in various local and international publications, including Jalada, Prafrock, The Beautiful Project, The Mail and Guardian, Spectrum.za, and others. They have served as a contributing editor for the New York Times and ID among others. They were Beach Media's first Global Feminism Writing Fellow in their inaugural 2016 class, where they wrote on race, media, sexuality, and survivorship. In 2017, they were managing editor of Platform Media, where they also served as acting arts editor for The Mail and Guardian for four editions of M&G Friday, and later moved on to be a senior media coordinator for arts and culture at Collective Media. They've been long-listed twice for the Sol Plucky European Union Poetry Anthology Award and their debut collection of poetry, Everything is a Deathly Flower, was published with Ushlanga Press in September, 2019. In 2020, they were shortlisted for the Ingrid Younger Poetry Prize, the youngest finalist of the year. The
0: floor is yours, Maneo. Beautiful. Um, hi,
6: everyone and um, Thank you so much for um, having me in this space. I'm floored by uh, the conversations that have been happening so far. Um, I am I'm very much geeking on everything. So thank you so much for um, having me in this uh, glorious space. Um, my response to um, the themes. Um, specifically around visibility and invisibility. In my own work, um, I'm recently very uh, um, obsessed with the idea of slippage or um, meaning leaking. So I'd like to start with an excerpt of the introduction that Professor Pumla Dineopola wrote for Queer Africa, um, the anthology of of, of queer writing and queer fiction. Um, and then I'll go straight into um, some of my own work in which I explore the idea of slippage. Um, the um, idea that I'll kind of go into um, that crops up into, into my own work quite a lot is the idea of being a witness or the word witness that I play around with and whose um, meaning kind of leaks all over the work, but I'll kind of explore it and then we can have a conversation and I'll chat about it a little bit later. So first, the excerpt from Professor Pumna Dinokola. In a very direct sense, here we have what Gabeba Badarun has called a leaking of meaning, producing not a tidy putting together, but sometimes a coherent sense of belonging, and at other times, a provisional one. Meaning leaks here, because of the many discussions and debates on the use of the word queer in African contexts, These conversations are varied and ongoing. So the first uh, poem I'd like to read is called Litzatzi, which it's in itself, um, the title also has a bit of of meaning and and leaking and spillage. Litzatzi means both the sun in my home language, but can also mean sunrise, but can also mean the day. And this poem opens up my collection. In your mother's red golf, you ask her what Benoni means. Son of my sorrow. Hearing the sun instead, you turn the word over in your mind like a coin. Ghosts are living in mine dumps as your mother drives you home. Honeycomb mountains are brittle. Tomorrow, you ask her for a crunchy after school. Like all names of the Bible, Benoni sounds ancient. Out your mother's mouth, magic, menjink, magic. You are still small enough to hide inside the good books, rice paper pages. You do not know yet what you are, have not had Leviticus angled at you like an ice pick. For now, the Bible is a hand drum for women draped in white and blue in a park-marked garage, there are women made of clouds and ocean. They make terrifying sea-wide music, the plastic bottom of everything that has a heart. Shells and bottle tops on ankles, how neatly old and new gods sit together. In school, you meet a man named Cecil John and learn the word pioneer turn the word over in your mind like a coin. Your mother is a witness. Your mother is a pioneer, not yet knocking on doors to tell people about the good news. You wonder if Cecil was a witness too, wonder on whose doors he knocked, for which God, to spread what good news. The second poem I'd like to read is called "Colocasia Delta after a fantastic Canadian poet called Gina Anfali. And I think in this sense, Witness takes on a different meaning. My collection um, deals quite explicitly with the experience with my own experience of healing from queer sexual assault. Um, And I play around if play could be a word (laughs) to describe the kind of work that I'm trying to do, or was trying to do, um, but I, I try and play around with the idea of, of witnessing who was in the room, who was not in the room, who, and the idea of belief. So this, this um, about the first time I told someone about what happened to me. He is hungry and sweet. He is an open palm but she is a jar of flies tonight, waiting for the 99 she tells the story while holding groceries. It is about a striped pole in the middle of the ocean. It is about a yellow line, two tongues hiding in a mine dump. She is a cracked thread spreading on a windshield. The sound of her mouth is anything but crystal. He is trying to understand, but the bus is here. He has an open palm, so they walk. She is a green dress unraveling. The story is a gulping thing alive. On the corner of Broadway and Balaclava, he begins to understand braces near a bench as it dawns, terrified now of the water. When the story finally arrives, everything black is a river. She is a delta now, unsedimented and wide, a shuddering category, veined blue with narrative, no longer an open palm, made sharp with shock. He wants a reckoning, a case file yawning open, a courtroom brimmed with judges, a banishing, a punishment. The water recedes, leaving her grocery bags leaking, both of them damp now, forgetting the way home. Um, There's one more that I'd like to read, Um, maybe two more that I'd like to read, Um, but one more from the book, and this one is called Ars Poetica for Julianne Okotbitek. Poetry is a crater. Poetry is a stalling witness. There are dogs at the door and they won't let me sleep. Every poem is a root both nascent and dying in the ravishing ferment. The only part of the plant I want to flower. Every poem is touched by the leaden soil. I am awake to appetite and expectation. I am aware of the boisterous, fizzy market for trauma, the rancid red meat of identity. I was very afraid until you asked, where are the dogs now? What do they sound like when they bark? Julie, I am a witness. Julie, I am learning my lines. I will see you at the bench again after this play is over and the bones are clean. And the last one that I want to explore is a New Work. And it's a, a poem that I was asked to write uh, by the Goodman Gallery um, for a posthumous um, exhibition by the, the prolific photographer, David Goldblatt um now late and this is um this is a poem exploring intersections and witnessing time is nothing but tongue and tundra both unknown to me as other names i alone recite them as beads on a rosary thumb over finger finger over thumb omniscient as the clicking of my own teeth in the night black names inscribed as they are now, as ochre passing over the Swabach. I alone know them, I care for them, despite the camera's open-mouthed gaze. They hum beneath me, black as the land's true face. Nothing of the casserole is bound to survive. Look now, how the mountain arches its back against time, how it turns away, finally, uninterested. Blood loops its way over the dry grass and splits itself into the mother and the father. The farm is deserted. Its flow is gated by iron and wire. All things eventually yield themselves reluctantly to the light. This is the camera's unwispered threat, its deepest comfort and absolution. It is the mirrored machinery's click, anointed and made clean by white light such terrible things have been done in my name. They are fed to me only to descend into the archive of my stomach, destined to rot there like looped blood, blackly thickening to feed and fatten pale hands. Death tightens itself to the soil, promised to us by men and blood. It is the only ribbon that binds the desk to the dust, the spine that straightens both. The same jackal that ran its ears through the fangbos is strung up by its back paws on barbed wire. Isn't this interesting? Whispered to us, close as a lover's teeth, imminent as the secret of my own tongue, they have left the jackal hanging like this as a warning. This is what they do, she said, but only to me. They have no way to dump their pain. It is as blue as that asbestos from Owendale that blows itself over our beds at night. It is trying to kill us slowly. It is the horror hiding in everything that they have done. They have eaten the earth. They have swallowed our songs. They have burned our ancestors' eyes. They hate the land that even now claims us back as our own. A record tries to remember, but the black earth spits him out like a seed. He cannot discard himself. So he looks around and manipulates the light. He does not know of the ocean that churns between history and memory, between what happened, what is happening, and what we capture of it. He does not care. Through a a thin fence, he searches for his own face, fixating on a pig's heat, unaware of his own discovery. Instead, he hums, look here, isn't this interesting? A child's finger resting on his little lip like a bee. A mother's earned an unowned halo. Black hands over white plastic, tugging braids into existence like poems. My father's golden pocket pen mine from a false promise. It's easier to live better by with ailerines. Bachenthal's obsidian monument, broken into two and then two again. How dare you say that there are no angels in this part of the sky?
5: Thank you. Thank you so much, Maneo. It's the second time I see you reading and the second time you're giving me goosebumps. And uh, I see it again that there are no questions, but I read just for you, I share some of the comments, radiant poet, riveting word alchemy, poetry is political, fabulous Maneo, the ones we dreamed, The ones we have been waiting for, here they are. I can feel this poem shaking my bones. So your poetry has been very, very well received. So thank you, thank you very much for inspiring us with such profound and well-crafted pieces, Maneo. Thank you very much. Our next poet is Dr. Peter Odendal, a poet, performer, translator, and editor. His debut collection, Assoffien Bergeholt Hefuen, Hetni, translated As If No Mountains Have Ever Lived Here, published by Tafelberg, won the 2019 Ingrid Jonker Prize. His poems have appeared in various local and international journals. He was the director of, of Inzing Poetry from 2015 to 2019, a poetry organization based in the English Studies Department at Stellenbosch University. Along with Anel Pitese and Bongeni Nomkonwana, he is the co-editor of the translation anthologies Many Tones, published in 2013, and Converse, published in 2018. Odendal holds a master's degree in sustainable development and planning from Stellenbosch University and a PhD in creative writing from the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. His practice-led doctoral research focused on how collaborative multilingual poetry projects can sound relations to ground, soil, land, and water in Mount and Cape Town, respectively. Peter has recently moved to Makanda to take up a postdoctoral fellowship at Rhodes University under the Menor Writers in Residence program. Welcome, Peter.
7: Thank you so much for the introduction, Raphael. It's a big privilege to share um, some of my work with all of you tonight. Um, I just want to say a few words about the theme um, before I go into the poems. Just that, um, as Raphael mentioned, uh, when I was working with Zinc Poetry, we, uh, that was really my first engagement with intersectionality and poetry and how they kind of um, work together. Uh, we had monthly multilingual poetry events in, in Kaimandi where people from different backgrounds and using different poetic styles would gather and uh, you know share their stories with each other um and there i really understood the dynamic uh, you know began to understand the dynamics of uh, the poetic event as an intersectional encounter right uh, a space for gathering where people can renegotiate their sense of self and traverse the boundaries between self and other um because of and sometimes in spite of um, language uh, more recently, with my uh, um, PhD research, um, I just want to uh, share a bit of the work that we did in Cape Town. So I was working with the poets, uh, Luanda, Sindapi, Tony Stewart, and Afifa Omar, and we um, did a series of five workshops uh, in different water bodies in Cape Town. Uh, within, this was in the context of the ongoing drought. Um, and so we had a workshop facilitators um, that helped us to um, conceptualize and explore different relations to water in Cape Town, uh, whether it be spiritual, economic, uh, physical, emotional, and so on. And then uh, we produced a a, a play called What the Water Remembers um, from that. And I I, I would like to share um, just uh, one poem that that I did as part of this process, just to give you a background. Um, This poem was written... um, during a workshop hosted by the Africa Water Commons Collective um, in Salt River, and they were sharing with us their first-hand experiences of the drought as it was happening, um, especially with regards to these uh, blue-top water meters that the city of Cape Town had started installing in working-class communities' homes, which essentially switched off the water after they had used 350 litres each day. Um, And so this, coupled with... um, Uh, extracts from articles that were also speaking about the drought and people's relationships with water. I combined all these different texts into this uh, found poem. This then is how far we've traveled from the source. When blue top water meters restrict the flow we need to replenish ourselves, when today's washing is rinsed tomorrow, when gardens go yellow and hands dirty. This then is how we ration our 350 liters before it runs out. How public toilets are locked at four. How learners are forced to bring water to class. How elders wander around asking for a sip to drink their chronic meds. How we let the brown mellow because the meter is ticking while diarrhea seeps into the foundations of our house. This thing is how others fill pools with mountain water sold by residents for koi ponds and jacuzzis, jumbo baths and water features. This then is how boreholes are sunk into a rock belly to suck her dry through obliging straws of steel when leaking pipes and rivers have already blackened her stomach. This, then, is how we drink the consequences. Under opaque lids, our water stops flowing before we wake up. A once-off fix for undetected leaks and accumulated debt, not properly consulted, not properly catered for, replaced, replaced, replaced. This, then, the burden of recurrent leaks. Before we become visible, we already learn to hate ourselves. We've been programmed to shut off before we wake up. okay this um, second poem was originally written in afrikaans uh, for the poetry and human rights project uh, which was recently uh, took place um, and uh, participants were asked to to write a poem based on the South african bill of rights uh, so i translated this poem into english but the characters original name Grondwet, i've kept Grondwet, so grondwet means constitution, um, but also literally in Afrikaans, it is the law of the land. Um, and so I like the sound of grondwet, but I also think that it makes it very clear, you know, where um, our collective freedom actually um, as a country lies in the grond, right, in the soil, in the land. Um, and so just one more note for those, uh, for the international um, delegates, I'm using the word at the end. Uh, which uh, is a colloquial Afrikaans word for the police. Grondwet rises and washes their face with the water they got before sunrise from the tap at the bottom of the street. They're 25 years old, but you wouldn't guess it if you stared into their rainbow eyes that don't know color or gender or creed. They see their skin in the mirror, a tie-dye bodysuit in ebony and sandstone, caramel and amasi, they tell their reflection, we are human, and we deserve dignity. They're covered in tattoos of the Bill of Rights, a blueprint of their ancestors' dreams for them. Everyone has the right to light from ear to ear, but the words disappear behind the mask they put on to their death. They walk through an empty kitchen. The text on their tummy swears food and water. The yard outside is dry, the sky filled with ash. The land belongs to none of them. The letters cover Grondwet's feet, a protected environment, housing and property. They step across the sewage in the streets. Everyone is going to or looking for jobs that won't pay them enough to move elsewhere. The letters burn around Grondwet's wrists, the right to work, freedom from slavery. They get into a taxi full of people that have to be home before 9 p.m. tonight. Freedom of movement reads the dream on their thigh. The horse radio claims a new curfew. Grondwet gets off at the parade where two homeless kids huddle around a fish and chips parcel. Grondwet's arms are patterned with children's rights that they can't read. The right to family care, to shelter, to schooling. They ascend the stairs of city hall, stretch their pink mouth open, sing their tattoo in all tongues. The fine print on their lips distorts. Freedom of thought, freedom of speech. The crowd gathers expectantly. The letters on their fists exclaim, freedom of association. Grondwet shouts, right to citizenship, Many nations reply, right to vote, the Buddha pull up tear gas and water cannons, freedom of assembly, the right to protest reads the couplet on Krontwet's forehead. The Buddha sneer, they grab Grondwet, pin them against the sidewalk, the right to privacy on their chest against the sidewalk, blood and water flow down Darling Street. The Buddha throw Grondwet in the back of a van, lock them up without a call. The day dims behind a barred window. A constable rapes them in a cell he is uninterested in the right to be protected against violence encircled by a red hibiscus on their pelvis grondwet's many colored eyes fade access to information on their shoulder at dusk the words their parents wrote like shields across their body mean less and less and less they wake at midnight surrounded by a choir of comrades. They pour Grondwet to the brim with courage, sing struggle songs and touch up all their tattoos. Grondwet knows where they'll be tomorrow, naked and healthy, their fist in the sky, the crowd on the parade. their tattoos will blaze with the battles of all citizens and non-citizens in the unequal morning light. And the Buddha will come and Grondwet will rise. And the Buddha will come again and Grondwet will rise again and the Boere will keep on coming and Grondwet will keep on rising. Thanks, that's it.
5: Thank you so much, Peter. Even for you, an outstanding response from our uh,
0: attendees. This poem, as very sharp teeth, words like shields across the body. This transcends national context,
5: shocking yet powerful. And I was also particularly uh, impressed by the first found poem. And uh, like uh, Dr. Prendergast at the beginning uh, with the poem that she presented, your own poem showed how a found poem written out of research data, is an artistic piece on its own right. So, and also on this note, I have a question uh, from the uh, from the floor. From Carrie, she asks, "Is your found poem the exact words of the participants, or is it a combination of your words and the participants?" Basically, she's asking about the writing process of that poem.
7: Yes. Um, so. Um, um... What I said just before I read the poem. In the first place, it is already a combination of what the facilitators were sharing with us on that day and um, verbatim extracts from articles on the drought. Secondly, um, I did not. I did not. I, I decided not to restrict myself by, you know, to stay verbatim with the word. So I definitely did, you know, uh, move it around a bit, you know, and 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 worked with this, this, then this, then as a kind of repetition. Um, so I think that that definitely also strengthened the, um, you know, the, the the kind of found text, and I would be interested, you know, uh, going forward with this um, uh, symposium to just hear, you know, what other people's thoughts are on that, you know, on bringing your own voice into found poetry, you know, yeah. where is that line and, and kind of how, how to navigate that, yeah.
5: Yes, we'll definitely discuss that tomorrow during our workshop, so thank you also for opening the doors for those kind of conversation, Peter. Round of applause sure. to you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, everyone, thanks. And uh, last but not least, our fourth poet, Cindy Wabuzuku an award-winning poet from Durban. She's also a lecturer in the Department of English Literary Studies at the University of Cape Town. Having been awarded a doctoral scholarship by the Graduate School for Arts and Social Sciences, She's currently reading for a PhD at Stellenbosch University. Buzuku served as the interview editor of New Contrast, the South African literary journal. She has published various poems and short stories in local and international poetry journals, such as New Coin, New Contrast, Craft Ons Olm's Aerodrome, the Soul Plakie European Union Anthology, Illuminations, and Five Points. She was awarded second place for the 2015 Plaque European Union Poetry Award, and she was shortlisted for the 2016 Herald Crack Award for African Writers and Artists, and for the 2016 University of Johannesburg Prize in the debut category. Her debut poetry collection, The Groundbreaking Loud and Yellow Laughter, published by Botsoso, won the 2018 Ingrid Jonker Prize for poetry. Over
8: to you, Cindy. Thank you so much. Um, Hi everyone. Um, Thank you to the organizers for inviting me to this wonderful, wonderful symposium. And thank you to the attendees for making the time. Um, So to begin um, just with my relationship to um, Poetic Inquiry, Um, I have an ongoing interest in writing that seeks to navigate the compulsion and complexities of renegotiated histories and archives. In this sense, I have an interest and an attraction that comes out of a particular need for writing that is generative rather than directive. I'm curious always of what emerges then when the rewriting and reworking of history, memory, imagination, myth, and documentary all work together and how this working together might pull different poetic knowledges and worlds into focus and view. The point of my writing and my poetic inquiry is not to fix or ascertain, the purpose is to open exploratory and speculative realms for thinking and feeling. I will be reading three poems um, in a poem such as Mother's Lyric the poetic is put to work and central language, the central language of the poetic opens up a space to think about the, growth, the outgrowths of embodied silence and the syncretic poetics of bodily becoming. And in terms of silence, um, I'll be reading Midnight in Lusiki Sutsiki or the Ruin of the Gentlewoman, which is a poem reflecting on the invisibility of our woman the many black women who live in the shadow of loss, who live in the shadow of what was lost at Marigana. It thinks through silence, the nature and density of silence, which is explored and excavated in order to bring out of silence an alternative, an, an alternate vocality, one that might oscillate between multiple perspectives and internal territories. Midnight in Lusikisiki, or the ruin of the gentlewoman. One by one, the old woman folk appear. Each falls to her knees in a field of mud, floral pinafore flapping in the wind. Rain rolls down their faces and into their eyes. They are draped in black shawls. The trees above are cracking. They turn to look at each other. The field has turned to blood. They whisper into each other's hands, cover me with a veil, evening has collapsed. After a long silence, they climb to their feet. Then the woman folk begin to walk backwards. A fluorescent swarm of fly- fireflies f- rises agile in the sky. Each woman scatters in separate directions, each disappears into the tall reeds, all of them waving and smiling so broadly, their lips begin to crack. The field has turned to burn. Soon they begin to laugh uncontrollably through their tears and their blood-stained teeth. Whispering, "Lonman has hollowed out our aching bodies. The second poem that I'll be reading is a poem called Portrait of a Mother in Indiscretion. My mother smells of indiscretion. In fact, she smells of strange things. Not camphor or zambak, not of anything familiar. My mother walks slowly, crossing the bedroom in high-heeled shoes. In my grey window, I see the sky. In the sky, the moon is round. She hides her smile behind the curtain lace and whispers, my child sees everything. I'm waiting for her to hang her winter coat. I'm eager to glimpse her body. Buttons fall away. She is kneeling at my bedside, upright. Her hand on mine, it's raining. She is lipsticked and caressing my face. The moon is dead. Her hands don't feel the same anymore. The stars have gone out. I turn and bite her sad hand. She flies backwards. I am loud in yellow laughter. I whisper back. My mother wears a disguise for my eyes only. My mother is an old woman. She is no longer young. Yet I smell her indiscretion. I have smelted on her for days. She has been laughing and smiling without restraint. And then the last poem that I will read, um, another poem dealing with visibility and invisibility, what is said and not said, what is spoken and not spoken mother's lyric one under two things the earth trembles under three it cannot bear up the barren womb this is formation this is a gardener this is a man of faith this is feverish ground two small burning hands held close to her breast head on her knees burrowed beneath the earth my young bulb asleep beneath the roots of bluebells. This is fevered ground. This is how the earth swells. This is the soil's hot breath meeting the chill. See the small gelatin skull. Feel the soft ridges of the spine. Hear the bloom of each pool. This is the form I once knew. This was the form. Where were you when I turned her eyeless face east said the man of faith. Where were you when I rooted lilies for eyes, said the gardener. This is the bruised tongue. This is the boneless answer. This is the tightly coiled whisper. Thank you so much. Indeed a boneless answer. Thank you for this
5: rendering of your amazing poetry, Cindy. Images that, as usual, stay with us for a long, long time after we have read them or heard them from the poet, as in this case. So again, you can also see for yourself, by yourself on the, on the chat that the, the, the comments are raining here. And they are all uh, are incredibly impressed by, by your reading. Um, Maybe, um, since I don't see any question, may I ask you to perhaps grace us with just one final poem to wrap up this memorable uh, panel? Do you have one for us?
8: Um, Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Um, Sure. Okay. Maybe we go with... um... All right, maybe we go with this poem. Um, Sorry, (laughs) can't find my own poems. Stonewall, stonewall for mother. Maybe all he remembered was how you sat with him in the white rain on the stone wall where your whispers hung beneath his feet. Maybe it was your back, bare and curling into hands of half light, or the slow turn of your face against a graying sense of time. Maybe leftovers of laughter, from garden strings your fingertips rained to hold that place taut before it all slipped away from you. He went away from you, with a wink and a formal bow barefoot with trousers rolled to the knees dancing homeward on those big dilly dally feet and you still sit on a wall calling for him not to grow old shouting into folk will you remember me will you remember me will you
5: Thank you, Cindy. Much love and gratitude to you and to the three other poets that really left us all uh, speechless tonight. I'm pretty sure I'm speaking for everyone. I don't know if I can do this, but maybe I would just invite everyone to unmute themselves and maybe even activate the video and just let's just give them a round of applause so that they can see how much they have inspired us tonight. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you, thank you. And then uh, I will um, just leave uh, the floor to Professor Heidi Van Ruyen, who will make the final remarks and some announcements for tomorrow. Thank you again for to the four poets and thank you to all the attendees as well.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to you, Raphael, for finding these gems. Uh, I, I think We all had moments this evening of sitting with, I mean, I literally felt like my heart was in my mouth. I couldn't breathe at points. I had tears, I was silenced, um, moved. Thank you so much. And I think um, Malika said this well, the ones we have dreamed of, the ones we have been waiting for, they are here. They are here. These incredible, incredible young people are here. Uh, so thank you, thank you so much. Um, thank you to everyone for, I don't think, we could have imagined this webinar any better. Um, starting off with you, uh, Monica and the panel led by Yvonne and then this really incredible uh, panel of just wonderful, wonderful young voices. Um, we really thank you deeply for for today and for this evening and for your offerings and your thoughtfulness. I think everybody was so thoughtful in what they put forward today. Um, And I think we all felt that and appreciate that. And I feel really full, full with gratitude for all of your offerings and your efforts today. Um, I want to just make a couple of uh, announcements about uh, subsequent uh, days. Uh, You know that we have webinar two tomorrow, which is a much more practiced uh, focus uh, uh, set of webinars. There's still room for you to sign up for those. So please um, do. Um, sign up for them. There's one that that kind of really focuses on the body and embodiment. There's another that provides this opportunity to bring your data uh, and to work with that, and a third that cr- creates a bit more of an open space for you to bring your own poetic inquiry and poetry and to share that with others. So please, we'll close registrations tonight at 12 p.m. Uh, South African time because we don't sleep here to keep up with all of you in your different time zones. But please. Uh, please uh, feel free to to, to uh, sign up for those. There have been a couple of comments in the chat which, which uh, I think uh, we have tried to anticipate and respond to, and my colleague Sam is going to drop some details uh, in the chat now. Um, and I think some of those are, there's a really fantastic website uh, that the International Symposium on Poetic Inquiry has that will link you to some really great resources. So we'll encourage you to kind of go to the website. Uh, there's past Poetic Inquiry uh, a Symposia, the entire kind of booklets or books. Uh, people have put their own books uh, on there, their chapters of Poetic Inquiry uh, work. So please go there. It's a really wonderful resource. And, and Sa- uh, Sam's given you the link uh, to that page. Quite a few people asked today when the poets were performing about your poetry. And if you feel comfortable to do that, we have created a Google Drive uh, uh, page or link where you could perhaps drop some of your poems or anything that you feel, uh, the agent rich thing, that can, anything that you feel you want to kind of just put into this community or this communal space. We'll also put presentations in there, anything that is outside of the formal... Uh, um, resources that are on the uh, international symposium poetry page anything outside of that we will put in the in the dropbox so please feel free to use it uh, the idea in creating the webinars was really about creating a community of resources not just community of resources of people but just actual texts and how to and how do we go about doing poetic inquiry what does all of this mean and as, what's it we're trying to do and trying to build so please put those there um What we are also hoping to do on the third day is a bit more of a a, a celebration, uh, bringing together music and poetry. Uh, We'll have a kind of final reflection uh, at the end of of that session. And we also will create a uh, uh, 20-minute open mic session. Uh, We want to invite you, please, to if you want to uh, uh, put your name forward to perform one of your pieces in the open mic session, please send an email to Sam Uh, She's put in her email address there. Uh, We probably will close uh, 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 the open mic slots by 12 uh, noon on Friday, our time, just to give us a chance to arrange that. But if you'd like to and feel inspired to put forward your work of love to all of you, bye-bye.